0: you have your Bibles with you, why don't you join me? I'm going to share two passages of Scripture with you today, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, Proverbs 13, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4, we're kicking off a six-week teaching series simply called Lead. It's called lead because as i've told you many times this church is all about being and making disciples and if we're going to be successful in that mission it depends upon every one of our ability to say i recognize i am mandated by god to be a leader for somebody i'm going to be somebody's leader and for a lot of us we say uh, i'm not really leadership material i'm more of a follower i don't have that responsibility I don't have that title. People don't follow me. There's leaders and then there's the rest of us. Well, Jesus would beg to differ with you. His great commission says to his disciples and all of his followers, go and make disciples. Go to people who don't know me like you know me and make them into disciples. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Baptize them. Those things require leadership. And I want to tell you, where God is going to take this church in the next 12 to 24 months, I believe there's an explosion in our growth and our influence that's coming to us that's already begun. And in order for us to really be true to our mission of being and making disciples, every single one of us needs to start seeing ourselves the way God does, and that is you're a born leader. Now, we don't all have the same capacities or same leadership giftings or the same level of leadership influence, but every single one of us is called by God and equipped by God to be leaders. John Maxwell. How many of you have ever heard of the author John Maxwell? Pretty famous guy. He has written roughly one bajillion books. Not an actual fact, okay? But he's written a lot of books. He is very, very, very... um, He's done well for himself. My pastor that I served in uh, Georgia when I was at First Assembly of God in Griffin, Pastor Randy Valamont, he and John Maxwell were personal buddies. Maxwell lives in Atlanta, or one of his houses is in Atlanta. And I remember one day, uh, Pastor Valamont came back and said, I got to go golfing with, with John today. And we're like, John, he's like, John Maxwell. We're like, that's a pretty big deal. Not just anybody gets to go golfing with John Maxwell. And we were asking him, like, like well, where did you go? He's like, well, I, went to, I met him at his house. He lives on the 18th green of Augusta National which is like the premier place to go golfing. And I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty big time. He's written a lot of books. I mean, leadership has taught him very well. Like he's done a good job. And Randy says, you don't understand. He lives on the green and he lives at a cul-de-sac across from one other house. That house isn't on the green. It's one off from the green. And the person who lives there is Hall of Fame third baseman Chipper Jones from the Atlanta Braves. Chipper Jones didn't even have John Maxwell money. It was amazing. Like, he, like, he lives across the street. He's like neighbors with John. So John Maxwell's written a lot of books on leadership. John Maxwell also happens to be a born-again, very devout Christian. He began as a pastor, and he's written a lot of books on leadership. The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership is probably one of his most famous books, but he's written many books. But one of the statements, one of probably the statements that's attached to him most frequently about leadership is this. He says, everything, everything rises and falls on leadership. And he reinforces that statement biblically and lifewise. And I won't be able to share everything about leadership this morning. Uh, thank, thank goodness. Um, I've gotten some good feedback on my speaking. Uh, some of it's good and some of it's, well, it's all good, it's all helpful. And generally it falls into one of three categories. I speak too fast which is kind of a disease I've been trying to be cured of for 20 years. I've told you before, I speak about 120 words a minute with gus of up to 200. Um, I speak too long or I speak too fast and too long. And so um, I want to get to be a better communicator. And so um, at the same time, the tension that I have is not that I think like, oh my goodness, like I am just this premier speaker and you should just thank God every day you get to come and sit in these uncomfortable seats and listen to me talk to you. I feel a sense of responsibility when I dig into preparing these messages. Sometimes God just gives me so much, and I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with all of this? I can't possibly get all of this out on a Sunday morning, even though I try unsuccessfully to do that. That's not fair to you, and I'm doing an injustice to what God gives me. I, I want to be a good steward of that. So our team came up with this idea of starting um, something we call Monday morning leftovers, And basically, it's everything I would have, could have, and should have said on Sunday morning, but that, for whatever reason, I didn't. And so it's just a simple, uncut, one-take video segment of me talking to camera, um, sharing with you anything that I wish I would have, could have, or should have shared in more detail on Sunday. At times, it'll probably be involved in me saying, um, I wish I would have said that differently or I shouldn't have said it that way. Um, that way, those of you that want a little bit more in-depth of what we're giving on Sunday morning, that's available to you on Facebook every Monday, um, and we can archive that. Those of you who get all that you can possibly handle in the time that we're here, we can get you out of here at a time where the school won't be upset and we won't burn out all of our children's workers. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to try and do to help your pastor with this problem that he has. So I'm going to try and speak slower a little more concise, a little more to the point. Um, Thank you for all of your feedback. Um, Many of you have been gentle with me, and I appreciate that. I'm learning, and I'm growing, and I want to get better at my gift um, because it's a gift that God has given me, and I love being able to use it, and I want it to be valuable for you. So you help me by discipling me, and you're helping me. Everything rises and falls on leadership. But do you know who the most difficult person is to lead? yourself. You are the most difficult person for you to lead. But I hope you've recognized at this point in the game that the difference between you living out your life dreams and you experiencing your life nightmares really, for the most part, boils down to how you are leading yourself. Life is about 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it. It's about 10% circumstances, things you can't control, but 90% of the way that you respond to what happens to you. Nothing in life of value will be accomplished until you really take ownership for how you lead yourself. And fortunately for us, the Bible is Filled with great insight and truth and teaching and practical wisdom for how you and I can best lead ourselves. What do we mean by that? It's the choices and the decisions that you make on the hour-to-hour, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month season of your life. It's about self-discipline. It's about self-leadership. It's about deep convictions and how those convictions are aligned with actions and those actions are maintained with discipline. And my hope is over these next six weeks... We can dig into and look at how I can prepare myself to more effectively lead and what other environments God puts me in in my life. We're going to look at six critical transitions, six critical shifts that everybody who takes self-leadership seriously has to make in their life. And I'll start off with the first one this week. Let's look in your Bible at these two passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 18 says this, Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Another way of saying that is that if you disregard and abandon living with discipline in your life, it's leading you on a pathway to being embarrassed and ashamed and living in poverty. However, if you will take advantage of the correction in life that you receive, if you will heed correction, if you will build in discipline to your life, you will live a life that is honorable. I don't know about you, but I want to live a life that is honorable, not one that is filled with shame. I don't want to go through life being embarrassed and ashamed of situations I've decided to put myself in because I didn't live with discipline in my finances, in my health, in my relationships, in my marriage, in my education. I don't want to live my life by making decisions that evidence, I have no discipline. I want to live a life that's honorable before the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul gets even more specific. He writes a letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor in Ephesus, in 1 Timothy 4, 7-9, he says, Timothy, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, What's that next word? Train. train. It's where we, The Greek original word is where we get our English word for train. Actually, it's the word where we get our word for gymnastics, like a gymnast would train. A gymnasium. Train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good. But training for godliness is much better because it promises benefits both in this life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. And I just want to remind you again, before you say this six weeks isn't for me, I'm not a leader. Jesus says your mission, my mission, our church's mission in life is to go and make what? Disciples. Leaders go and make disciples. Disciples. Every one of us should have three different kind of people in our life. You should have a Paul in your life. That's somebody who is discipling and leading you, training you. Somebody you look to. Somebody whose life is an example for you to pattern after. We all should have somebody like that in our life. We also should have at least one Barnabas in our life. That's somebody who is going through this journey of life right alongside you. Somebody that you can share your experiences with. They're being trained, you're being trained. And then we all should have a Timothy in our life. Somebody who looks to us to be their Paul. You never graduate out of that. One of our missions here at Echo is to say, when you come to be part of our family, we're going to make sure all those relationships are in place in your life. Right now, the easiest way for that to happen is by getting involved in one of our growth groups or in on one of our ministry teams. Because right there, you're going to find a Paul. You're going to meet other Barnabases. And in most of those groups are going to equip you to reach the Timothys in your life. The people that look to you as an example. So of these six weeks, we're not going to be that. We're going to be broad. We're going to look at six. If you want to get there, and I pray that you do, because you might say, I'm not a leader, but being a leader is attractive to me. I want to be the type of person who can responsibly influence people to make more godly decisions in their life. That's the legacy that I want to leave. Well, then this six weeks is going to help you. We're going to look at six shifts that anybody on that leadership continuum need to make in their life. The big idea I'm going after today is this. The big idea is that leading yourself means developing calculated rhythms of discipline. If you're going to effectively lead yourself, meaning you're not depending upon another human being for you to do the basic building blocks of life. You don't need somebody to drag you out of bed this morning and talk you into getting your clothes on. You don't have to depend upon somebody else to make sure you show up at work on time. You don't have to depend upon somebody else to make sure you stick to a budget. That you're watching your nutrition. That you're getting after your health. That your marriage stays healthy. That you're going to class. That you're studying for exams. If you can get to the place of self-leadership. This is essentially what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Don't get it twisted. They had followed him for three years three plus years, and Jesus says to them, I'm leaving, now you go. And what he's essentially saying is, go because I believe you're ready to lead yourself. But here's the other part of the equation. He also says, but I'll go with you through my spirit that lives in you. Because you see, Jesus knows you're hard to lead. You look at your neighbor and says, Jesus knows you're hard to lead. Look at your neighbor and tell him, Jesus knows you're a hard one to lead. But because he knows that, he's opened up his gymnasium to you. He's opened up all of his resources to you. And he said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And one of the characteristics of that Holy Spirit we're going to talk about today is self-control, self-discipline. Because one of the hardest things for anybody to master is the discipline, the leadership of self. And so we're going to look at what the Bible says. And again, I recognize there are people who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior who are really good at self-discipline. You can achieve a certain amount of moral, moral goodness in the eyes of the world by, being self, by developing self-discipline. But as, we'll, as I'll share in a couple minutes if I have time, there's a few things discipline can't do. And one thing it can't do is buy your way into heaven. You can't self-will and improve yourself into heaven. Heaven doesn't require you to buy your way in. It doesn't require you to discipline your way in. It doesn't require you to train your way in. You get salvation by His grace through your faith. But what that does require, walking out of Christianity requires our effort. Training in godliness requires participation on our part. That's what we're going after. So the big idea is leading yourself means developing calculated rhythms of discipline. Let me just brief, give you a brief definition of what self-leadership is so we can tie this through the next six weeks. It's in your notes. and uh, You know I love math. Where are my math nerds? Love a good chart. Good, okay, the rest of you, were praying for you, but I love math. I like equations. Here's an equation that helps me understand what self-leadership really takes. Here's the building blocks. Self-leadership equals conviction plus action plus discipline. Those three things. Got to have them all, Okay. Self-leadership. You can have these things independently, but they usually get your life off track. Okay? You need conviction plus action plus discipline. Say it together with me. Conviction plus action plus just one more time, like you've had coffee already. Conviction plus plus. Okay. Next week we're going to talk about aligning our convictions with our actions. Okay, So I'll just define those for you. We won't teach those this week. This week, I'm going to talk about discipline. Okay, Because what happens is, <laughs> conviction, what do I mean by that? Those are those deep core beliefs and values that you aspire to, that you live by. It's what's under the hood of your life. It could be something like, I believe that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I want to live in such a way that I become more like him every day. That's a deep conviction that I have. You might live with a conviction that says, I should weigh within a certain range of pounds, there's a certain number on the scale that I should maintain. Or that I should stick to a budget and I should get out of debt and I should make sure that I'm living inside of my budget. I should make sure that I am punctual to work and to my kids' soccer games and even to church on occasion. There are certain things, (laughs) there are certain things, right? That are convictions in your life. Those convictions should lead to actions. Actions, what we mean is this. Action is where you put your convictions into motion. Conviction without action is worthless. These are the people who don't walk what they talk. These are the people who say, I have these deep convictions, and their actions don't support their convictions. Okay? Now, what keeps convictions and actions in alignment? Because I I think, have you discovered that it's possible to have a conviction but live the opposite action? Is it possible? Can you say, I believe I should stick to a budget, but I don't. I believe I should weigh X and follow the strict diet, but I don't. I believe I should be on time for work, but because of all these reasons, I can't. I believe I should spend time with God every day, but you know, my life is just too busy and he understands you can have convictions and actions that don't line up, and that's a problem. What does God teach us helps keep them aligned? Discipline. Discipline is that mechanism. It's that regular rhythm of scheduled maintenance, and it's that regular rhythm for refueling and maintaining and making adjustments that helps you and I recalibrate our life and make sure our actions are lining up with our convictions. If the conviction is I'm not supposed to talk back to my parents... And my action is that I'm talking back to my parents. What they don't need is a cookie. What they need is discipline, amen? A little weak on that one. I think I know who your kids are. (laughs) Discipline is not evil. Discipline is not for our worst. Discipline, when properly administrated, is corrective and it is life and it is part of leadership and we embrace it. Now, I'm not, I can't tie every loose end this morning. There is such a thing that's discipline that's not designed to be redemptive. That's called abuse. Biblical discipline is corrective in its heart. It's a rhythm. It's a routine. It's accountability. It's for maintaining the connection between my convictions and my actions. And I'll tell you this. If you don't have discipline in your life, you will end up at a destination you never intended to get to. Having discipline. Discipline is the differentiator for life dreams. It might not be because you have a lousy plan or a wrong conviction. It just could be a lack of discipline in your life. And I promise you, once you get rid of discipline, if you ignore it, it will carry you to a destination you never wanted to be. And that's not what I want for you. And that's not what God wants for you. For you, that destination that you don't want to be might be a spouse that just walked out the door. It might be maxed out credit cards. It might be a number on the scale that you don't like. It might be failing a class, or It might be a failed business venture or an investment that went wrong. But that's not the time to start figuring out, maybe I should get some discipline in my life. It's a good time, but it's not the best time. The best time to develop discipline is right now, right now, so that when those storms come, and they will, you'll know what to do, because those moments might discourage you, but they won't derail you. You'll know what to do. Let me tell you a story of how this uh, worked out in my own life, um, If you would have asked me at age 16 to describe my life right then, I would have used words like, it's unfair, it's really difficult. Uh, I'd probably just say, I don't like it, I can't wait to turn 18 and move out. Because, in my own mind, I compared the life I had to my other friends around me and concluded that mine was somehow more difficult. And why did I come to that conclusion? Well, because when I grew up as a child and into my early teenage years, on Saturdays, it was not a day for sleeping in. It was not a day for getting up and sitting in our jammies and eating cereal in front of the television and watching cartoons. Saturday was for chores. And from as early as I can remember, we did chores every Saturday morning before cartoons came on, before we went out to play. We had to do chores. Chores. When we were little, it was things like, terrible things like dusting, which I never understood that word. When you dust for fingerprints, what are you doing? You're you're, you're putting dust everywhere, right? And then when you dust the room, you're supposed to take that. Shouldn't it be called de-dusting or undusting? I I don't know. (laughs) You wonder what goes on through my brain. Those are the things that, that, these key world decisions that are going on. We had to dust. We had to wash and dry dishes and put them away. When all, I know, gasp, right? When all my friends, so I thought, were out just living it up, watching Muppet Babies and Smurfs and playing in the yard, and I'm in the kitchen struggling through washing and drying dishes. Then when I was old enough to push a mower, I had to mow the grass. And at age 12, two weeks after I learned how to push a mower, the church my dad pastored hired me to push mow the three acres of land that we lived on. And I couldn't get away from it. We lived, in a, we lived in a little trailer behind the church of about 100 people that had three acres of land, including an apple orchard. And they paid me $3 an hour to push mow three acres of land at age 12. Struggle, suffering, until the paycheck came. And i was like, sometimes it was like $21. Sometimes it'd be close to $30. And then more suffering because I wasn't allowed to have all of it. I had to give the first 10% to God and the next 40% to a savings account. I only got 50% of it. That was unfair. So I thought. And that continued. The older I got, the more the chores became. The older I got, the more responsibilities I had. I, I worked pushing that lawnmower at the church as my summer job. Every single week, I had to push it because every single week, the grass grew. And as, it took me several days to mow all the grass until I was done up by the volleyball court where everything was at the end. The grass I started with the first week had to be mowed all over again. It's just like that grass kept growing, and every day someone had to go out and mow it, and I was paid to do it. I'm messing them up. I keep moving back and forth. the I'll stay right here. I'm sorry. Um, Then when I was 15, I was like, I'm done with mowing lawns for the church because some guy in the church who owned his own lawn mowing business offered me a job mowing lawns for him, and he paid me $6 an hour. Yeah. So he would some days pick me up after school, and he would take me, and I would go and mow all these lawns, and now I was making more money. And then later in my teenage years, my parents started giving me more responsibility for not only chores, but my clothes and my possessions. I had, to st- I had to learn how to wash and dry my own clothes. Mom didn't do it for me. She didn't iron my clothes. I had to learn how to iron my clothes. You see, my mom worked full time from 11 at night till 7 in the morning. My dad worked from 7 in the morning till 8 at night. I had a younger brother and sister. And so I had to learn how to do laundry and fold clothes and iron. I had to make dinner When I turned 16, I was encouraged to pass my driver's license. They didn't give me a car. All my friends had cars. I didn't have a car. I could borrow the station wagon if nobody was at work. I was allowed to use the car to run errands and go to my job. And that was so unfair, so I thought. That was so unfair. My junior year in high school, my mom said, at the beginning of the school year, we'll give you a certain amount of money for school clothes. That's not enough to buy all your clothes. But you go spend it how you want. And anything you want above and beyond that, you pay for out of your money. And I thought that was just so unfair. All my other friends had cars they didn't pay for, gas they didn't pay for, they weren't going to work. But I had to do all that. My senior year, my mom said, I'm not getting you up for school and making you breakfast anymore. You get up when you want to get up, you go to school if you want to go to school, and you deal with all the success or the consequence of it. Now that part I liked. But you know... I got to school right on time every day, but I wasn't late. But I could not wait to get out of high school. In fact, by then I had taken a job working in a men's clothing store because, yeah, they pay me, but I got 40% discount on my clothes so I could stretch my school money farther. But you know, if you would have asked me at age 18, one month into my freshman year at college, what was my teenage years like, I would have had a different answer. I would have said, man, it was great. I learned so much. Because you see, when I went to college, my parents didn't have the ability to help me financially at all. When I went to college, I had to pay my own way through, and I went to a small private college. There wasn't a lot of funds to be able to put me through school. So I had to not only go to college, I had to get a job because I had to buy a car to go to my job. And one month into my freshman year, I went and I got an entry-level job at a local hotel busing tables. And my shift was from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. four nights a week. So I would work from 4 to 11. I would drive back to my dorm room, microwave something to eat, study till about 2, go to sleep, get up at 7 the next morning for class, go to chapel, go to my after- eat lunch, go to my afternoon classes, go back to my room, take an hour nap, and then go work again. But you know, by the time I graduated, I only had to take loans for one year. I paid three years of college. I had a car that was paid for. And about one month into my freshman year, I noticed two groups of individuals emerging from my freshman class. There was one group of young adults there, and there was another group of overgrown teenagers. There was one group that had been taught discipline. And there was another group that had never been taught discipline. There was one group that got themselves up in the morning and got themselves dressed and ironed their clothes and washed and dried their clothes. And they didn't have to go home to do their laundry. There was one group that did their papers and had jobs and handled their money responsibly. There was one group that was there training to be pastors and missionaries and evangelists and educators. And there was another group that was there and they just had to learn the very basics of having to take care of themselves. And my parents, I learned, and I would tell you today, they gave me the very best possible upbringing. Bringing, they gave me something better than paying for college. They gave me something better than paying for all my clothes. They gave me something better than a life of ease. They gave me the gift of discipline. I never suffered, and I know it must have been hard for them when they could have made things easier for me than they did. But you know, those formative years of my life, they taught me how to lead myself. Trust me, I treated my classes a whole lot differently when I was paying for them than when they were. That being said, I don't have any issue with people who help their kids along with their education. I'm just saying, what worked for me? I'm saving money now to help my boys with their education. I'm in a different place in my life and my budget than my parents were at that time. At the same time, that doesn't mean I suffered. I I had a circumstance and I responded to it in a way that says, I'm not going to feel bad for myself. I'm going to go out and get a job and work for this. That's the next best thing I can do. It built into me a series of disciplines about getting myself up and going to school on time, getting myself and going up to class on time. That's why to this day, punctuality is a big deal to me. When people show up late to things, it drives me nuts because to me, it's not always an issue of emergency. It's an issue of discipline. It's an issue of respect. How would you keep a job if you showed up late four out of five days of the week? It mystifies me as to how people can show up late for some things and not another. It shows you're able to but there's no discipline for certain things. What had to shift in my life? I'll give it to you, point number two. The biggest shift in discipline is you have to move from trying to training. You have to move from trying to training. Discipline is the distinction between trying and training. And isn't it interesting that the people that we usually admire the most are those who really have chosen discipline in their life. The people who live a spiritual life we admire or a vocational life that we de- desire or, or have a- accomplished great things in life, it's usually because of discipline. And a lot of times we look into the discipline of others and we admire it. I don't like the New England Patriots at all. Let me just go out there and say that. Okay? My, my apologies to Pastor Stewart and to Lincoln and uh, the other Patriots fans. I just don't like them. I'm contractually obligated not to like them. However, I will say this, and this will probably get some news. There are some things about the Patriots I respect. I don't like them, but I respect. And one of the things I respect is the discipline with which Coach Belichick operates certain parts of his practice and training for his players. I read, I don't know if you read this article, I read an article this week about even the way that Belichick teaches his players to be disciplined about their sleep habits. Did any of you see this? They actually, I forget if it was an MIT study or whatever, but they conducted a sleep study and they determined that for every one deep cycle or REM cycle of your sleep that you miss, for every one hour or one REM cycle you miss, your cognitive function decreases by 16%. And so they've got their players disciplined on a certain sleep program so that they're at peak cognitive ability when they go on to the football field. How many of you would love to have a boss who is that concerned about your sleep habits? They're saying even Tom Brady takes an hour and a half power nap, uses it as an adrenaline dump before every football game so that he gets that one last cycle in and he can hit at peak performance. Now you can do that or you can just videotape someone else's practices or get their put play- I'll leave that on. <laughs> I'm playing. I'm just teasing. But we look. sometimes we look at people's discipline and we say, man, that person is really disciplined. I admire that. But you know what else happens? Sometimes we look at other people's discipline and it irritates us. We look at how disciplined they are and we're like, oh, that just makes me angry. Like that guy in your neighborhood who has run 15 laps around the cul-de-sac before 7 a.m. Every single morning. It's that gal at work who only eats salads. And if you're that gal, there's no hate there. But it's like the one who only eats salads. Salads. Of course, I'm picking on people around my office because they all eat healthy, and then there's me. You know, it's like, oh, what is that? Well, it's 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 some pine needles with a with a dressing of <laughs> organic air and water. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Jesus help me, <laughs> please forgive me. What are you eating? Well, it was Mission Barbecue, but you know, I... and we look at their discipline and we're like, oh, I just I'm so angry that they're like that. You know, it's that one person in your growth group who has the entire Old Testament memorized. And every time a question comes up, they're like, well, it says this in the book, in the, you know, in the book of Habakkuk around the, you know, the fourth chapter. Well, it has three chapters. No, I know the fourth chapter. I uncovered it myself on an archeology span trip. And I've committed it to memory. And here's what it says. It's those people that have those kinds of discipline. It's that neighbor that says, you know what? Well, I don't know what you're stressing about. I'm completely debt-free except for my mortgage. And I'll have that paid off in two years. And we look at that. And sometimes we admire it. But a lot of times it irritates us. And it angers us. And it provokes us. Why? Because other people's disciplines confront my own excuses. Because they're training and I'm over here trying. You know, that's our number one excuse for not being disciplined. It's this little excuse we say that's, I'm trying. I know I should stick to a budget. I'm trying. I'm trying to be a better mom. I'm trying to get up every day and read my Bible. I'm, I'm trying to be a better husband. I'm trying to read my Bible more. I'm trying to get in better shape. Most training fails because of lack of discipline. Because maybe deep in your core you believe, I should be more physically fit. I should pay more attention to my diet. That's a conviction. And certain times when you're inspired either by yourself or by the doctor or by a loved one, you say, I need to put action to this. So I'm going to go dust off the gym membership. I'm going to go on Amazon and treat myself to a treadmill. I'm going to empty the pantry and go get organic pine needles and water. I am going to uh, you know, follow this new plan or this new book or this new diet. And so you've got conviction, you've got a plan. But somewhere between that action and you getting healthier is something called discipline. And most training fails, not necessarily because of a poor conviction or because of a faulty plan, but we just didn't carry those convictions, those actions out into progress and discipline. If you take something seriously, you're not going to get there. Without training. Which sounds more hopeful? The young lady who says, well, I'm trying to become a doctor. Or the one who says, I am training myself every day to become a practicing medical doctor. The lady who says, I'm trying to be a good mom. Or the one who says, I'm training my children to become responsible godly adults. The one who says, I'm trying to stick to a budget. Or the one who says, I'm training myself to live a a life of financial peace. No amount of willpower and trying will get you there. Anything that's worth value in life, you have to get there through training. Whether it's learning another language or playing the piano or balancing your budget, learning how to share your faith, paying off your mortgage early, all of those things require training. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us to try, it tells us to train. It doesn't say try to be godly, it says train to be godly. It doesn't say try to be more healthy, it says train to be more healthy. Number three, I have more to say, we'll have to leave that for the leftovers. Well, number three. Training yourself in godliness adds value to your entire life. If you came this far in the message, you could probably do everything that I said and never have a relationship with Jesus. You could go home more excited about a diet plan or balancing your budget. But let me tell you, Paul steps into this situation with Timothy and he gives us this powerful passage in 1 Timothy where he says, training yourself in godliness It's so much better than any other kind of training you do because it's comprehensive, it's all-inclusive. If you train yourself in godliness, what he's saying is it will bleed over into all these other elements of your life. It's like a one-stop shop. It's that one, it's the Bowflex. It is the one machine that if you work that machine, it'll add value to everything. That's how exercise equipment people make their money. They're like, listen, don't buy these 10 things, buy this one thing. It'll have 972 pieces to it. It'll sit in your basement and collect for dust for years until you sell it on Craigslist for 100 bucks to anybody who will drag it up three flights of stairs. But this one thing will replace everything else. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's making a physical gymnasium training analogy. Let me prove it to you. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was famous for its gymnasiums. It was famous because athletes came from all over the empire there to train because you had the Domitian games. The Domitian Games were these annual events that were set up by the emperor Domitian, and they were held in Ephesus. And it was determined to to decide the fittest person in the entire kingdom. And they would come together, and they would compete in sprints, and in boxing, and in gymnastics. And they would train there. Ephesus had gymnasiums. And so when Timothy would be out witnessing the people walk around the city, you would see these gymnasiums with world-class athletes everywhere. Because they knew if they entered the Domitian Games... If they didn't get up off of their couch or whatever they had at home, if they didn't get up off their couch and train, they weren't going to win. Every single one of these gyms was packed with people who every day, every week, every month were training their physical bodies to get stronger, faster, more flexible. And they were training themselves physically to compete in these games so that they went. They were, their bodies were just temples of discipline. And Paul writes to Timothy, and in this passage he says, don't get caught up in discussing old wives' tales. He says, look at all the gymnasiums. Look at all the people that are training physically. And he says, physical training has value. There are physical benefits to physical training. There are also other benefits to developing systems of discipline. But he says to Timothy... But godliness is even better training than physical training because with godliness training comes along an impact that bleeds over into every area of your life. If you train yourself in godliness, your marriage is going to get healthier. If you train yourself in godliness, the way you stick to a budget and approach money will improve. If you train in godliness, there is an impact on the way you eat. On the way you think, on the way you treat people, on the way you approach your physical health, on the way you approach academics. When you train in godliness, it bleeds over into every other element of your life. And so he says to Timothy, don't just get isolated on training physically, though it has value. One thing way above that is training in the disciplines of godliness. I want to show you a video as I get ready to close this morning. It's a two minute video. And it is from a commencement of a college where they invited a a retired uh, Navy SEAL admiral to come and talk to them on the topic of discipline. And he talks about this concept that basically what Paul's telling Timothy is that discipline reproduces more discipline. Discipline begets discipline. If you start disciplining yourself in the area of godliness, it's going to bleed over into every other aspect of your life. And it doesn't happen magically. Magically. There's a very practical way God designed this to operate. And I think that no one's ever explained the way that discipline reproduces better than this uh, retired admiral. So listen to why he explains that the most important thing he ever learned as a SEAL was to start off every day by making his bed. Check it out.
1: To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning, we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride and it will encourage you to do another task and another So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed.
0: I'm going to invite our worship team to come. If all I do this morning is inspire you to start making your bed, I will have failed, <laughs> right? But he raises an interesting point. He says, by the end of one day, one task completed will turn into many tasks completed. Discipline reproduces discipline. When you train, For anything, what you're really doing is saying, I'm going to start off every day by assigning myself an appointment, a task, something to complete, and I'm going to complete that task. And the way God wired us is that the completion of that small task delivers us a small sense of joy and satisfaction that energizes and inspires us to complete another task and another and another. That, my friend, is how you develop discipline over anything. Life doesn't offer us a lot of quick fixes, But the Bible teaches us that if we'll heed discipline, we'll develop regular rhythms of discipline in our life. We'll live a life that is honorable, and it prioritizes that shift from trying to training. And it says the thing we should go after, first and foremost, is godliness. Because if you and I will say, I'm not trying to be more like Jesus, but I am training to be more like Christ to be more, to think more the way he does, to adopt more of his feelings, more of his emotions, to live out more of his actions, to know more about what he said to me, to understand a deeper awareness of his truth and his purpose for my life, it will bleed over into every other element of your life. And those, that one priority of discipline will trickle down and fan out. You see, godliness is comprehensive. It impacts everything. There's one thing discipline can't do. Discipline can't earn your salvation. Discipline can't make you perfect before God. Discipline can't pay off the debt from your own sins. You see, it has its limitations. No amount of effort or training or trying is going to get you to heaven. The only thing that gets us to heaven, praise God, is the grace of Jesus Christ that was poured out for us and love displayed on the cross. And it comes through our faith and accepting that. You see, you don't have to earn your way into God's favor. You just have to accept his grace that's already there for you through your faith. And the moment that you do that, the moment that you accept the lordship of Jesus Christ over your life, you confess your need for him, you exchange your person for his, he opens up all the resources of his gymnasium. He gives you a gym membership that you can use, and that is the Holy Spirit. He opens up all of the power, all of the person, all of the resources of the Holy Spirit to come live in you, to help you live a life of training and godliness. And here's the truth. You are exactly as godly as you want to be. I can give everybody in here a free gym membership and you will be exactly as healthy as you choose to be. You've got access at no cost to you. You can go and use it as little or as much as you like. But I've removed from you the excuse of saying you don't have the resources. God has given you an all-access pass, an all-access training pass in the Holy Spirit. And I want you to use it. Well, pastor, how do I use it? In short, the conclusion, I train in godliness by practicing the disciplines. Practicing the disciplines. And I guess I'll have to talk about this in leftovers because I don't have time this morning. But what I really mean about that is like me, I am a I am a Christian. I am a practicer of the disciplines of Christianity. You know what I do? You know what the gym is for me? It's reading my Bible. It's studying my Bible. It is memorizing scripture. It's prayer. It's meditation. It's giving. It's confessing my sins and extending forgiveness. All of those disciplines, all of those pieces of the Holy Spirit bowflex, so to speak, all of those pieces not only benefit me in godliness, but they benefit every... If you practice daily confession of your sins and extending forgiveness, your relationships will dramatically improve. If you practice the daily discipline of meditation, of being quiet before God, it'll make you more thoughtful about the times you open your mouth to other people. If you practice the discipline of prayer, you will walk in intimacy with the thought stream of Jesus Christ. Anxieties won't pile up on you as fast. Disruptions of your day won't derail your day. There is benefit. To, if you study the Bible and you start putting those principles to work, there is truth that applies to everything you do from your job to your finances to your budget to your 401k to your retiring of debt to the way you treat possessions and purchases to how you treat the people you don't even like. It's all in the Bible. And if you practice those disciplines, those parts of your life will improve. Are you trying to be better or are you training to be godly? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to do some training. I'm ready to do some training. Because I know when I train in godliness, it's going to move me in that direction of being more like Christ. It's going to make me a more effective leader. And so today, I want to encourage you, make that shift from just saying, I'm trying, to saying, you know what, I'm going to leave trying over here, and I'm going to start training. Let's pray this morning. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes as the worship team plays behind me. Those of you that may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, here's your moment. This is where you enter the gymnasium. This is the part that discipline doesn't get you. This is free. Free to you, it costs Jesus everything. I said earlier on several times today, I'm a Christian. What do I mean by that? It means A, B, C. I have admitted that I am a sinner. I am imperfect. I am broken. I can't self-repair. I am not right with God. I recognize that I am broken. I admit that. But I also believe in Jesus, letter B. I believe what the Bible tells me about Jesus, that he Loves me, he created me, he doesn't want to be separated from me because of my brokenness, because of my sin. And so, I believe Jesus exchanged, set aside all of his privileges in heaven to come take on the form of a man, live a sinless life, and he died on the cross to pay the debt for my sin. He was my substitute. And then, three days later, he rose from the dead, and now he offers me salvation he offers me freedom he offers me forgiveness he offers to exchange his rap sheet for mine and how did i get it letter c i just confess that jesus is lord that he is the leader that i am his follower friend it's as simple as abc are you ready to take that step today watching on facebook listening on the podcast here at the high school if you're ready to take that step Be made new. Receive salvation from Jesus. It's a simple prayer of confession. And here it is. I'll lead you in it right now. Dear Jesus, I admit that I've sinned and I'm broken. I believe in you. I believe in your death, your resurrection, and your plan to save me. And now I confess you are in fact and in truth the Lord and you are my Lord. I must live your way. I must follow you. I must choose and decide as you would have me choose and decide. And so now I welcome you. I accept forgiveness. And I welcome you to live in me. Hallelujah, you live in me. You live in me today. In your name I pray, amen.